documentary on Hitler's bodyguards revealed some 40 attempts to assassinate him. Interestingly enough, his security forces only thwarted a few attempts, and according to the documentary, all the other efforts were foiled by sheer luck. Hitler was paranoid, and rightly so, as being one of the most hated men in the world at his time. He would frequently change his mode of transportation or his schedule at the very last minute, not even informing those closest to him. Some of the efforts to assassinate him failed in suitcases with bombs not going off, roadside attacks, he doesn't take that route, people planted in certain places and bombs situated, and he never showed up to what was on the schedule. And some of it was just poorly executed. In John's gospel, we have seen in chapter 5, 7, 8, 10, 11, and 12, numerous efforts to assassinate Jesus. Sometimes the crowds around him picked up stones to stone him. Other times, soldiers were sent to arrest him. In every situation, Jesus has sovereign control over that, as we have already sung today, and he delivered himself because his hour had not yet come. Today in our passage, John chapter 18, we are going to see that Jesus actually surrenders himself to an arrest. He is not captured. He willingly trades his life for the lives of his disciples. We look at this passage, and because of its length, we're going to look at all of John chapter 18 this morning. There's 40 verses in there, and it kind of spills over into chapter 19 as well as the trial of Jesus goes on. But there's three big movements. I'll give those to you up front, and then we're going to dig right in. The first 11 verses recount Jesus' arrest in the garden. And then we have in verses 12 through 27, Jesus' Jewish trial and Peter's three denials. And then beyond that, from verse 28 to the end of the chapter and actually into chapter 19 and verse 16, we have Jesus' Roman trial. Those are the simple movements of the passage, and if you've been in church on Easter, no doubt you have heard parts of this passage spoken from, preached on, and shared. But Let's look at these first 11 verses as we see Jesus being arrested. We're told that when He had spoken these words, those words are chapters 13 through 17, that Jesus went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, what's interesting about this brook, Kidron, I'm going to give you a little history, is there was significant touching points with this location throughout Israel's monarchy. This is the same place that David evacuated the city when his son Absalom rebelled against him and turned the hearts of Israel against David, and he sneaks out across this valley and escapes his son who had betrayed him. The Kidron Valley was also the place where David's son, Solomon, 
desecrated the name of the Lord, and he built places to worship the Ashtaroth, the, the god Chemosh and Molech, these gods of the Amorites and the Moabites. Those same gods Josiah would later destroy. And in this valley, King Asa buried the Asherah that his grandmother had set up in 1 Kings 15. Hezekiah, in his reforms, took all of the cult objects that he could find in the city of Jerusalem, whether they were in the temple or they were altars for burning incense or they were the high places, and he took them all to the Kidron Valley and destroyed them. So it was a place that was used to burn or bury idols and cultic items. It was also, in Jesus' day and previous to that, a place for the burial of people. What's interesting about this valley that Jesus crosses is that this brook would run with water in the wet season, but it was dry season now. Why do we take all this time to talk about this? Well, because the brook that David crossed when he was fleeing his rebellious son is the same brook Jesus crossed after his people rebelled and rejected him as their king. It's the same place where the false gods were worshipped and then later destroyed. It becomes the place where the Son of God passed on His way to the cross where He would prove His victory over sin and death. Because these silent graves would give up their dead when Jesus called forth those who were buried in them. Because the Lamb of God, who would lay down His life for us, crossed a place that in just a few hours, when the Passover started and the animals were being sacrificed in the temple of Jerusalem, Jesus, that valley that was dry, would be flowing with the blood of hundreds of thousands of animals that were slaughtered. I mean, can you see the symbolic nature of this? The lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world is crossing over a dry place where soon hundreds of thousands of sheep would be slaughtered and their blood would flow. We're told as we continue on, now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So I'm going to pause yet again here. Judas has procured a band. That is a very technical term. It actually is the word cohort. It is in Roman language, and it was a tenth part of a legion. It would be as many as 600 men. It doesn't have to be that many. It could be as few as 200. But still, you get to see the significance of what's taking place. You have armed Roman soldiers traveling with the security forces of the temple. They are coming to Jesus at night armed and with torches. They are expecting a fight or a flight, and they are going to find him in the dark. You have the leaguing up, the tying up of Roman leadership and Jewish leadership. We continue to read, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What's going on here? The high feast is a time of great turmoil in the city of Jerusalem. There would be perhaps many, many hundreds of thousands, if not close to a million people flooding the city gates. And so the priests uh, were not only concerned about keeping their power, but Rome was also concerned about keeping their power. In spite of the fact that hundreds of thousands of people would be flooding in to worship here, they also were not so naive as to think everybody came with the best intentions. So this was a perfect opportunity for the zealots, that's a political party in Judaism, to destroy Rome, expel them from the land, and reassert Jewish control over this territory. So the zealots were an insurrectionist. They were the the terrorist group of their day, if you were Rome. And so Roman officers would be on high alert. And that's why when Jesus is being arrested, as he is portrayed as an insurrectionist to Rome, as he's betrayed as a threat to Caesar, here we see they are not going to let things get out of hand. They want to secure Jesus. And it should be no surprise to us that both of these leaders, the the chief priests and the Roman leaders, are working together. And yet we see that Jesus has complete control over the situation. What do we see in verses 4 through 9? But knowing what is going to happen to him, he takes the initiative. He is not arrested. He gives himself up. And he delivers his disciples from arrest and harm. We read that there in verses 4 through 9. Did you see in verse 5, he says three times, I am he. Who do you seek? He asked twice. He says, I am he. He does that in verse 5, in verse 6, and verse 8. You remember Jesus told his disciples that all this would take place back in John chapter 13, just a, a few hours before this event. He says, all this is going to take place in the order that I've just described to you, and it's going to happen this way so that you will know that I am He, that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Now, we see that the soldiers come prepared for a fight or a flight, but they encounter a fearless, bold, and commanding figure who steps out of the darkness to meet them. In fact, it's they who shrink back in terror or perhaps in awe, according to verse 6. And again, John wants us to feel the majesty and the power of Jesus. Here is the one who walked on water, who stifled the raging storms, who healed the blind, the sick, the lame, the deaf, the one who could cast out demons and even raise the dead. And we see this encounter between the battle-hardened soldiers and the living God. And who wins? 
These men shrink back when Jesus steps forward. When Jesus boldly says, I'm the guy you're looking for. And it's Jesus who continues to control the narrative here. For a second time, he asks them in verse 7, who are you seeking? It appears that this twofold repetition of this question in verse 4 and verse 7, it serves to prompt the soldiers to verbalize, we are after Jesus of Nazareth, not his men. And that's the way that Jesus takes it in order to fulfill the words that he spoke in verses 8 and 9, that he would secure the lives of his men. He preserved their physical life right here in this moment. And Jesus was also going to preserve them spiritually. Christian, where are you today? I know you're here. But where are you in life right now? I mean, it may seem you could be like the band of the disciples. Hey, I'm just following Jesus. Everything's hunky-dory. I know all the stuff we've been talking about. But then, wham, wham, life hits you. And you find yourself believing for a second, tempted to think that God is completely out of control of your situation. I want you to hear and see from this text that even as it related to his own arrest and death, Jesus maintains absolute control. He does this for us. It is not an example to follow. It is a once and for all time. Someone did what we could not do. We are going to throw our hands up in the air. We are going to lose our tempers. We are going to panic. We're going to believe that we're only dealing with whatever it is we're dealing with. No one else can truly understand the scope of our situation and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And yet, the Scriptures are telling us that in spite of us losing our minds, Jesus stayed calm because He is an effective high priest who is interceding for us, who is able to see above all the fray of joblessness, of sorrow, of disappointment. And so I ask you again, Christian, as in the disciples' situation, so it will be in yours. Yes, suffering is going to be your lot. You see, Jesus protected them that night, but he also told them, just hours before, that as they treated me, they're going to treat you. You guys are going to be hauled before judges, and you're going to be crucified. You're going to be punished. You are going to go to jail. You are going to give up your lives for me. But for this moment, Jesus is going to protect their physical life. And I'm just telling you, suffering is our lot as Christians, but praise God that Jesus is promised and will give eternal life to each of us. Peter's attack is kind of futile, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. What could 12 do against so many? His instinct to defend Jesus was admirable, but it was totally unnecessary, as Jesus quickly and strongly points out in verse 11. Put up your sword. Jesus leaves no question about the fact that he has no intention about securing his safety by force. He is not going to initiate his kingdom by force, as we will see in verse 36, but he has to drink this cup that his Father has prepared for him. And you wonder, what is this language that Jesus uses here in verse 11 when he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
This is Old Testament language. It's language that we see in Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This language that Jesus is using from the Old Testament is language that shows us God's wrath is sometimes pictured as a cup full of fomenting wine. It's, it's poison, it's judgment, and it's the wicked who will drink from it. And they can't just sip from it, they have to drain the whole cup. That means there's, a, there's this image of them suffering just judgment under God's wrath. Now Jesus has been innocent. Why in the world would he be suffering and drinking a cup of God's wrath when he has proved himself to be the righteous son of God? He did not do anything except what the Father told him. He did not act in any way except for what the Father modeled for him. He was tested time and time again to put himself in a place of preeminence over his mission and to suddenly take advantage of all the benefits that lay at his fingertips and to exert his will just one time. And yet Jesus never did that. So why is it that he is being punished? Why is he taking that Old Testament image of drinking God's wrath upon himself? Well, the answer comes to us in what follows in the rest of this passage. We see it in verses 12 through 27. He came to save sinners. And who are the sinners in the passage? It is the Jewish people who reject Jesus as king, and it's even his own disciples. As Peter denies him three times. As we look at verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So what we see here is only after Jesus has said it's okay does this captain, his soldiers, and the Jewish officers Arrest and bind him. Don't miss this. Again, making the argument that Jesus is in total control, we see not only does he step forward and deliver the lives of his followers, he is the one who's driving the conversation, and it's when he says it's okay does things, uh, do things proceed. Jesus is in control even of his own arrest. So the question comes, why was he taken to Annas' house if Caiaphas was the high priest at that time? And that's a fair question. History tells us that Annas was a high priest, and according to Jewish law, once you were a high priest, you filled that role until your death. That's the way it worked. With Rome controlling Israel and Judah and Jerusalem at this time, it worked differently. They might serve for a number of years, and then they would be replaced But this man had such great power he had amassed due to his exploitation. Some think that he is the one who started selling the animals in the temple, in the uh, the Gentile court. This is a guy who had a lot of power. He knew how to flip levers. He was a political insider. He was corrupt. He was sneaky. He was deceitful. He was all the best things you could be if you were a corrupt politician. He knew exactly what to do. 
And he was in league with the Romans. And what he was able to do is not only secure the high priest for himself, but even five of his sons served in that capacity. And now we're introduced to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. This is a man who had his finger on the pulse of power. That's why he was taken there first. This is a man who wanted to ask Jesus questions about his disciples, about his teaching. He was not there as an intrigue, someone who was interested in what Jesus had to say. He wants to know, how big is your clan? How many disciples do you have? How widespread has this infection gone? How many people do we need to wipe out? Seems little doubt here that Jesus was given this informal exam and then later brought to the Sanhedrin and to Caiaphas. We're told that Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, I know everybody wants to know who that other disciple is. So did another disciple. There's the answer. He is another disciple. It could be John. It could be somebody else. Doesn't matter. John doesn't matter. He's not concerned with it. And this disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, in chapter 11, we're told that Caiaphas, as we see spoken here in verse 14, that he had ruthlessly declared that it was better for Jesus to die than for the the high priests to lose their power, that the whole nation should perish. That's that's the egomaniac that these high priests were, that they embodied the entire nation. And in our passage, John highlights what Caiaphas could not know that his diabolical words were also connected to divine prophecy regarding salvation. You see, Jesus would give his life for the people of God and all who would believe in him. And we don't know who this unnamed disciple was, but this servant girl who worked the door had some reservations about Jesus, even though this unnamed disciple vouched for Peter. She's got some reservations about letting him come in, and so she asks, are you one of Jesus' disciples? Now, let's just be fair that the wording of her question leaves the door open and actually leads to the answer of no. You know, you're not one of those disciples of Jesus, right? You're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? It presumes a negative, a no. Peter just kind of rolled with it. Hey, open door, literally, and metaphorically, I'm just going to take it. Much has been made of the fact that he was afraid of a girl and her question. I'm inclined to think that Peter was just thought of this as more incidental. She asked a leading question, and he simply took advantage of the assumption that he wasn't a disciple. Nothing more crossed his mind. He just took the opportunity and rolled with it. And then he quickly tries to fit in by warming himself at the fire. We see that in verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And we leave the courtyard and we go into that room. But before we do that, I want us to just pause here for a moment because I know my heart 
And so I'm going to speak to you as, as God has been speaking to me. You and I may do the same thing that Peter has done, taking somebody's softball question and using it to exploit an opportunity to not be truthful. Perhaps we even do this intentionally. Young people, your parents ask a poorly worded question and you take advantage of it. Was so-and-so there? Uh, Well, yeah, but the person that your parents didn't want you to be with was also there, but because they only asked about this one person, you don't tell them about the other people that were there that you're not supposed to be hanging around? You ever been there? Husbands and wives in our conversation, whether it's about budgeting, parenting, purity, or whatever, a poorly worded question becomes an excuse for us not to be forthright. We do it as well. We leave out the bad. We shade the truth. We don't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Instead, we try to protect ourselves with a lie. But that is not what we have been saved from and saved to. As Christians, we have renounced sinful and underhanded ways. Jesus has called us to walk in the light and to always speak the truth. We read this in Ephesians 4 and verses 15. Now as we move back to the narrative from just a little pause here to poke our conscience a little bit, we see that Jesus is now front and center. Back in verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Notice the order there. Again, he's more interested in how widespread this phenomena is than he is the content He starts with the number of disciples. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in temples where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now let's just look at this for a moment. There's some surprising details that John wants his readers to know. These were a Jewish audience that's reading his gospel. He's trying to evangelize them. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah they've all been looking for and they missed it. But it's not too late. They can still believe in Him and not only be forgiven of their sins and restored to God, but they can also participate in that longed-for kingdom of God. And so these Jews would have seen what is lost on us. The fact that Jesus is being questioned at night is against the Mosaic law. The fact that Jesus is being questioned without any witnesses in his defense being presented, is against the law. Jesus sees all this, and he speaks to it. You might see that someone would stand before the Sanhedrin. They might be a little subdued, perhaps even fearful, and pleading for mercy, but Jesus doesn't cower in front of this powerful man. Jesus isn't impressed 
He doesn't beg for his life. In his answer, we cannot read arrogance, though. The Lamb of God is gentle and lowly, even as he is being interrogated by his own creation. This is mind-blowing. The Creator on trial by the created. There's no false bravado here. Jesus makes the point that what is taking place is not legal. That's what he says in verses 20 through 22. He's speaking about the fact that you have arrested me, and now here is going to start a trial, and it should be done legally according to the law. The high priest was legally bound to produce witnesses both for the prosecution and the defense. And in Jewish law, the witnesses for the defense, they went first. It was the witnesses who testified first. And nothing like that has happened this evening. Jesus goes even further to state, it shouldn't be hard to find witnesses who will testify to what he has taught. He's not done it privately. Yes, he was in homes. We saw that with, um, with uh, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. But it wasn't like Jesus said one thing publicly and had a totally different story and teaching when he was in private. No, he is the same in both scenarios, in both settings. His message was always the same, whether it was in a synagogue, a temple, or the house. So here's Jesus calling the Sanhedrin to follow the law that they set into motion by his arrest. And so that's why we see this this response was not well received. One of the high priest's soldiers smacked Jesus or punched him. And once again, the law was broken for the very simple fact that this man was hit under arrest. I think this makes this point. In this passage, the only person that we see bearing witness to the truth is Jesus himself. It's not the, the high priests. It's not the soldiers. Certainly not Judas. It's not even Peter. Peter has already denied Jesus once, and as we go on and look at verse 25, Simon Peter, we, we go from the inside of the room to outside. He's standing and warming himself by the fire. And so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, the, the stakes are getting a little higher here. He is a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. He asks, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. When it comes to bearing witness to the truth, Jesus is the only one who does. Everyone else bears false witness. If you've ever had a conversation around a campfire, you know exactly how this goes. Someone will ask a question and the rest of the group goes quiet as they lean in to hear the answer. And I think that's what's taking place here around this charcoal fire that night. Once again in verse 25, the question that Peter is asked leaves it a leading question. It, it is also like the servant girl at the door. It's to assume a no. I mean, what are the odds of someone who followed Jesus being right here next to us at the fire. Here we are in the courtyard of the high priest. I mean, it's crazy. This is like mission impossible. Ethan would be so impressed with the stealth skills of Peter here. So they assume that Peter is not one of his disciples. 
right here in the midst of hostile territory. And John indicates that Peter responded a little bit more emphatically this second time in verse 25. I am not. He denied it and then said, I am not. But then a little bit later, a relative of the man that Peter injured a few hours earlier asks a third time if he was not with Jesus in the garden. For sure, I've seen you. This is the first time that anyone asks Peter such a pointed question. It's not leading in the sense of no, it's leading in the sense of I'm pretty sure you're the guy. Shadows and everything, darkness and all that, I'm pretty sure you're the guy I saw hit my cousin. He's certain. For a third time, Peter denies it, and at once a rooster crowed. Unlike Mark's gospel and Luke, John doesn't tell us how Peter responded to the realization of what he had done. The man who was so bold in the upper room that told Jesus, I will go to death for you. The man who actually wielded a sword against Jesus' enemies and cut off a man's ear is now lying about even knowing Jesus. Peter's an example to us of how the best intentions don't always come to pass when there's great pressure. We're going to return to his story later in chapter 21, but let it suffice for today for me to say this. We're all Peter. We are all Peter. I'm Peter. Every one of our elders is Peter. Every one of our deacons is a Peter. Everyone that teaches the Word to your children and to the teens is a Peter. Y'all, we're all Peters. Like, like Peter, we have denied Christ with our decisions, with, with our hearts, with our words and our actions. And praise God that Jesus knew all this in advance and still loves us. I mean, you read this passage and we want to admittedly say, oh, Peter, what a bum you are. We would never do what you did. And now that I'm saying that we actually have done what he did, now we're all feeling like, well, I've got to somehow man up and I've got to be better and I've got to be stronger. And I'm telling you, that is not the response that should come from anyone who is like Peter. The response should be one of profound humility and gratitude that Jesus loves me. That Jesus loves any of us. He said this was all going to happen this way. That means he's prepared for it. And how does he atone for our rejection, our denial of him? He atoned for it on his cross, not ours. His cross. This is why Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath that was meant for you and I. He saves us from our sin. We come to the third movement in our passage, and it'll be brief. We're going to pick up this next week. What's important for us to understand in these following verses, as Jesus is led from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, is that we see not only the hypocrisy of these Jews who refuse to enter the Gentile Roman governor's quarters, his headquarters, 
because they were going to keep themselves sanctified and holy so they could participate in Passover. To enter that would have defiled them for seven days. But yet, they have no concerns about killing an innocent man. I mean, doesn't that like hit us a little bit? That John states this. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. And what are they doing They are sending Jesus to death. This false testimony of hypocritical leaders who lied to Pilate, and they tell Pilate as he comes outside to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if he were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Take our word for it, he's guilty. No due process here, nothing to see, nothing to investigate, just kill the man. We wouldn't waste your time if it weren't significant. And that's why Pilate says, he knows the game. Well, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews respond to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, which was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we have these hypocrites who joined the masses, and what you might not know is that the headquarters of the Roman governor would be crazy in the morning. Uh, There would be hundreds, if not thousands, of people standing outside the doors at the feet of the steps or on them, and they would be screaming and yelling for the governor to hear their case. They would pay people to advocate for them, and they would be crying out their innocence. Another would be crying out, no, this person is guilty. And in all that noise and that hubbub, the chief priests marched Jesus up there in the midst of the crowd, and they're like, here's a court case you need to settle on today. Here's a trial you need to issue a verdict on. In Matthew 23, Jesus lights up the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, which shows us how in the world these men would have no qualms about murdering someone, yet they are so particular about ritual ceremonial defilement. Here's what Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, Mint and dill and cumin, these spices, and yet they've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You see this? contrast, this absolute ridiculousness. These men shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They refused to enter it or allow those who wanted to enter it to get in. And yet they are so diligent to maintain their laws according to their standards and neglect God's. Apparently, not only did these men expect Pilate to hear them and just take his word, their word for it, but they were insistent that Jesus would be tried and crucified. The goal for them, remember, numerous efforts had been made to arrest or stone Jesus. All had failed. And no doubt these religious leaders would have liked to have dealt with this quietly before anything had really come of it. They wanted to nip it in the bud, as it were, and make Jesus disappear before he gained a following. But all these efforts had failed, and now it had to be public. Why? 
Because it had to be a crucifixion in order to put such stigma on Jesus that nobody would want to touch him. That no follower would dare raise their head or announce their loyalty to Christ because they would be in fear of the same punishment. A Roman crucifixion was not reserved for the best of the people. Paul, as a Roman citizen, would later be beheaded for following Christ. That was the way Roman citizens were killed. But the rest of the world, the criminal criminals of criminals, crucifixion was reserved for them. It was painful. It was long. It was public. It was humiliating. They could hang up there for days. Birds would be pecking at them. People could throw anything at them. They could do anything to them that they wanted. It was to be a spectacle of absolute sorrow and grief and pain and agony as a lesson. And so these men demand, as the Old Testament law states, anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God, and they demand that this is the way in which Jesus must exit this world. And what they fail to understand is this is exactly the means by which Jesus intended to exit the world. You see, our God is in control of every little detail. Not only of his arrest, not only of crossing the brook Kidron, not only of being examined before these Jewish leaders and these supposed godly men, but also even in the manner of his death. You see, the word of God must be fulfilled, and that is the case in this passage. We see time and time again, people are bearing false witness. Jesus speaks the truth. The truth is, we're going to celebrate his death today. We don't do this with a fanfare and trumpets blowing. This is not a party. This is an element of an ordinance that Jesus instituted on this very last night, that his body is going to be broken. And he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples so that they would eat of it. As a symbol of his broken body, he then took the cup of wine and he shared that with them and he says, this is my blood which is the new covenant. This is the way in which I will redeem all who look upon me and who trust in me for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus said this is going to be a perpetual memorial It's going to be something that you're going to do together to remind yourselves that you are all Peters. That we are all in need of this Savior. That our lives are in His hands. Which is why we can sing, whatever my God ordains is right. It's why we can sing that our souls find rest in God alone. Because they certainly don't find it in our football teams. They don't find it in our bank accounts. They don't find it even in our families. Our souls find rest in God alone. Jesus is setting all this up. And we're going to get into it more next week. But this that we are about to do is so important that we understand the significance of what is taking place. Jesus has alienated himself from his Father so that he can redeem you and I, calling us brothers and sisters, adopting us so that we could become the sons of God. The world is not interested in hearing this, but this is the message that Jesus came. I want us to fast forward briefly to this, uh, what Jesus speaks with Pilate. We're going to come back here next week, but for time's sake, I I want 
us to hear what Jesus says to Pilate in verse 37. Pilate says, so then you are a king after asking Jesus about it. And Jesus is like, well, who told you that? Are you interested or are you just repeating what you've heard? His response prompts Pilate to say, so you are a king, okay. But notice Jesus' answer in verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate then goes out and he says, I've found no guilt in this man, but you guys have a custom. I'm going to give you a way out, you corrupt high priests. I'm going to let you have back your king and it'll give all the guys of we tried him and he's proven innocent. Or, hey, guess what? We can do a trade here. And it's going to be Barabbas' life who's saved and this man's life who's taken. Barabbas, a man who is known as a zealot, he murdered somebody or somebodies in an effort to overthrow Rome's rule of the Jews. And he's in prison for it and he's going to die for it. And his life gets traded for Jesus's. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And so here is Pilate saying, you guys got a choice. You can have Jesus, your king. Or you can have this guy who's a murderer and a criminal. And so here's my question for you today. What are you choosing? Who are you choosing? Is it going to be Jesus? Because, listen, when you choose Jesus, it's because you hear the truth that He is God's Son sent into this world to bear witness that the Father loves sinners and has sent His Son to die on the cross in order to redeem sinful people, in order to reconcile them to Himself, to adopt them and bring them into His kingdom and His family. And that in Christ, all our sins have been atoned for. You are hearing this as truth and your heart is leaning into it or, or it's just like uh, Barabbas. I'll take the guy that makes sense to me. This is the choice. Some of us have made this choice. As members of South Canyon, we, we hold to a confessional faith. You don't join this church just because it's whatever. You join us based on a profession of faith. I believe these things about Jesus. My life is ordered around these things. I embrace him. I will follow him. As imperfectly as it is, I will follow him by his strength and by his grace. Is that the choice that you've made? What we're about to do is for those who have made that choice. This communion, I know, it's, it's 1139, but it's not snack time. This is, it is bread, it is juice. There's nothing significant in themselves, these two elements. But the picture behind it is really important. The picture behind it says, I live off of the grace that comes from Jesus. I depend on him for life. I trust in him for all things. I don't look to my own strength or my own wisdom or my own power. 
This is the statement that we're making as we share this. And if you are a Christian and you're not a member of South Canyon, you're invited to participate in this table with us. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But if you are under discipline from a church, if you're not following Jesus, if you are not a believer, then when these things are passed out, please just let them go. It's for us to worship the one that we've been singing about this morning. It's for us to testify to the goodness and the grace of God to do for us what we could never do. He finished his course without one failure, without ever bearing false witness to the truth of who God is. Praise the Lord that he did for us what we could never do. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to hear the truth about Jesus. And even more so, we thank you, Lord, that you have shown us that this indeed is the truth that he bears witness of and that we want to follow it. It's not in us to do this. We're like Peter. We, we might feel a little pressure. We might feel the heat of some questions, and then we shrink away from it. And I pray that's not the case today, Lord, that if you're speaking to hearts this morning, that indeed there would be a saving grace that goes out in this room and that touches and transforms hearts. We pray for your church, Lord, that, that those who there is nothing but guilt in would treasure the Christ who is guiltless. That our love and our joy and our affection for the one who is who is always good and holy, would not just inspire us, it would shape us. That we would have a joy today as we leave, not because of any works we've done, but because of all that you have completed for us in Christ. Our cross is the one that you took on. Not only are we all Peters, but we're all Barabbases. And so, Lord, I pray that you would build your church with your word and that as we share in this table, as we eat this bread and drink this cup together, that we would testify to not only the death of Christ, but also his promised return. And so we conclude our prayer. We ask, Lord, that you would come soon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.